Blog Talk Radio. Radio Inside Edition. Today is January the 28th. We're already through the first month of the year, and it just seemed like we just had Christmas and we were just celebrating the new year, but now we're down to almost 11 months left. Time flies, I'm telling you, when you're having fun. Today, we have four fantastic authors, two hours on tap for you, starting with John Dedakis, Edward Kay, John Hegenberger, and Sally Fernandez, all four going to bring their very unique perspective to their writing and personal experiences, especially with our first guest that is coming up, uh, John Tadakis. We spoke with him back in 2011 uh, with his latest, with his first book back then called Fast Track. Um, a lot of people might not know that John is affiliated, of course, producer with uh, the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer on CNN and want to talk about stories and insight. Um, John will definitely have that for you going on. We want to also remind you that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. Hopefully you won't hear my wind um, storm going on behind me in my studio, but it is extremely windy in Southern California. I was waiting for Dorothy and Toto to fly by the window, but luckily that has not happened yet. So let's get into it here with our first guest. His latest book is called Bullet in the Chamber. came out in October 2016, so it is available now um, by going to Amazon and just clicking on it and getting it, in for, uh, getting it into your Kindle or however you want it. And so, John, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? Thank you, John. I'm doing fine. So, again, we spoke to you way back for your first book, Fast Track, but now you've kind of done something a little different with this latest book, Bullet in the Chamber. This is a very, very personal uh, book that you base this on, and so give us the uh, behind-the-scenes story and what you have going on here in this latest book. I okay. First, let me just make one slight correction. Um, uh, for about uh, let's see, I, I worked at CNN for 25 years, and the last seven on the Situation Room with uh, with uh, Wolf Blitzer. I was one of his uh, copy editors, but I retired from CNN about four years ago. So. Um, okay. I've, I've got a little distance now between the, you know, the journalism career and the writing career. So now I write full time. I edit people's manuscripts. I lead writing right. workshops and all that around the country. So uh, um, not so much in the day-to-day journalism thing anymore. But so um, you were out but, of this last. You were out of this last political cycle. Good for you. You got out right at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was a news consumer, and uh, uh, which yeah, which was which helped me, uh, I think, better empathize with the rest of the electorate, and um, and 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 it gives you a different perspective, you know, being on the other side of the footlight, so to speak, uh, and we can yeah. we can certainly talk about that in more detail, but uh, 
as you know, my novels are inspired by journalism. I mean, I, you write what you know, and I was a journalist for 45 years. And the fifth novel that I'm writing is going to probably be somewhat inspired by the latest uh, presidential election as well. Um, so anyway, I can I can talk about Bullet in the Chamber, which uh, my my uh, protagonist Lark Chadwick in this in this novel is a White House correspondent for the Associated Press, and it's her first day on the job, and the White House is attacked. The president goes missing. The first lady's life is in danger, and Lark's love interest goes missing as well, disappears. And I covered the White House for the last three years of Reagan's administration, but uh, the problem is that when I covered the White House, there was no such thing as the Internet, cell phones, right. all that kind of stuff. So um, I had to uh, call on my friend uh, Josh Lederman, who is a White House correspondent for the Associated Press, uh, to give me, you know, bring me up to date on how the White House is covered in the in the digital age. He uh, was kind enough to read the manuscript and blurb it and uh, and blurb the novel. And um, he was one of my writing students when I was uh, when he was an intern at CNN and. I taught a writing class, broadcast writing news class at uh, at the D.C. Bureau. So uh, um, oh. you write what you know, and you take advantage of the people who are in the know to to write the novel. And you know, one one more little nugget about the novel: one of the key subplots is also ripped from reality, and that's the heroin overdose death of my son Stephen five years ago. And it was definitely a catharsis to be able to write about that. Yeah, I mean, when you're putting something like that so personal down on paper for kind of the world to see, uh, I, you know, I mean, it's kind of a twofold thing. It's almost, you know, very therapeutic in a way for you to do that. But, you know, I mean, it took some time, of course, because we're almost six years removed from, from that tragic, tragic event. So when you kind of were writing the book and kind of looking back on it and, and putting all together all of your emotions, everything that happened from that, you know, how was that for you? How was that experience uh, for you to, to, to put that in the book? Well, it, I think probably in a word it was agonizing, but it mm. was definitely therapeutic as well. I I started uh, I can't the 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 cover for the the novel is uh, features a uh, a bullet in the in a syringe, and it's yep. an image that I came up with while Stephen was still missing, and uh, we hadn't found him. We didn't know for sure that uh, heroin was involved, and I used the image to for two reasons: one, to underline the uh, Russian roulette powerfulness of uh, of heroin, but also sort of a, a personal bias, and that is that it's my feeling that if the police can make a connection between the fatal dose of heroin and uh, 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 and the pusher that they should charge the pusher with second degree murder because in my opinion it's like selling a pistol with one bullet in the chamber to a person you know is going to play Russian roulette and you don't care um, but I also found that that making that connection is not as easy as it might seem. So it's not as satisfying as it might seem. Uh, I'd, I'd certainly love to see, 
you know, pushers get more time in prison uh, for ruining people's lives. But, um, you know, pushers have rights, too, and they and it's the government's responsibility to be able to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's not a slam dunk. So there's a there's a lot of friction going on in terms of, uh, you know, how the heroin scourge can be addressed. And it can't just be addressed you know, by the, you know, in terms of law enforcement, there are so many other avenues in terms of prevention, uh, treatment, uh, grief counseling, and so on. So it's, it's, you know, the whole problem is not easily dealt with. But that was one of my hopes in writing the story is to, in a sense, destigmatize the problem because, you know, Stephen was a good kid and uh, he was a funny kid. He had, a, he was smart. He had a lot of different. Um, possibilities in his life and that was one of the reasons he turned to drugs because he felt he needed that little extra push and uh you know i i think that it's it's so easy to stigmatize and uh the 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 user um and not understand how powerful addiction really is and how much of an equal opportunity uh, ruiner it is. Uh, it's everywhere. It's in small towns, big cities, you know, every, every strata of the socioeconomic uh, uh, area. So, um, so writing it was, was therapeutic and important, but, um, and, but it wasn't agonizing. And I, I, uh, I wrote the first draft. I started to write it maybe eight months after Stephen died and that was too soon i had to set it aside and uh, i don't think i really started to write it for another two years and it i think took two years to write if i'm not mistaken you know it's it was agony but um but i feel that i mean my agent feels that it's the you know the best of the four novels that i've written and it's certainly in my opinion one of the most important ones that i've written now a lot of people might not realize, but this is actually the fourth book in the Lark Chadwick series because when you started with Fast Track and you moved you know, forward through, uh, through Bluff, Troubled Water, and now into Bullet in the Chamber, but with such an emotionally charged subject matter that you were putting together, was it difficult for you to weave the story to make sure that it fit you know, a Lark Chadwick series or were you contemplating maybe, you know what, I'm going to maybe put this one on my own and not put it within the series and make it just a whole standalone kind of book? Did that thought process ever get into your head? It did. And I, I think it's a really important question that you've, you've asked because um, the way I, I'm, I've, I never intended to, to write a series. Uh, I think most writers probably just want to get published and they're only thinking about that far ahead until they realize, or at least until I realized that uh, uh, there was a certain degree of longevity that, uh, that was built into, you know, having a 20 something young woman trying to figure out her life. And uh, it's, it's sort of a potentially a lifelong endeavor because that's the way we live life. We're always trying to figure out the next step. So um, I think was because, because by the time I got to the fourth novel, I really identified with Lark a lot, and I write in the first person. 
so it seemed as though continuing the series but using Stephen's death as a subplot to sort of ignite the story and, and get the uh, uh, and, and then pour it into a bigger one sort of killed two birds with one stone. It was it, it enabled me to address the issues of heroin and grief and so on, but I was also able to put it into sort of a, 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 against a backdrop that was just a bigger thriller mystery kind of story so that even if somebody didn't really care about my particular story, I was able to write it in a way that would, I hope, entertain people who like mysteries. And I always try to write my novels as standalones so that uh, you can pick up the, you can pick up any of the books and not feel that you've missed something, uh, uh, missed something that will spoil the current story. So, uh, uh, that's that's what I strive for when when I write. I may do a standalone at some point. I'd I'd like to do more literary fiction, but I don't think I'm I don't think I'm good enough to do that yet. I probably have to take a writing class on uh, on writing uh, literary fiction. So I want to remind everybody here that we are speaking with author John Dede- John Dedakis, and you can visit John's website at j o h n d e d a k is.com for more information on the latest book, Bullet in the Chamber, along with all of John's books, uh, which include Fast Track, Bluff, and Troubled Water, all in the Lark Chadwick Mystery Series. So let's get into Lark. Give us a little bit of background, you know, how she has been able to progress here through your four books. Uh, who is she as a person? If, if I were to have her, you know, sitting here in the hot seat and, and I was talking to her, what would what would readers find out about Lark? What would they know behind the scenes that's not maybe in the books? Uh, I I really like Lark. Um, I know her very well, of course, and I would say she's probably she's probably who I would be if I were a woman. Um, I just have discovered that uh, you know emotions aren't gender specific. Men generally have anger nailed, but they don't really, I believe, have the same, I don't know, emotional, um, they're not as nuanced in the way they're able to express their emotions. So I feel I've probably become a better man by being able to write as a woman. And um, I'm, I'm also sort of in awe of Lark because she's, she's not as observant as, I mean, I'm not as observant as she is. I'm not as brave as she is. Um, I'm just, I, she's a strong person. She's a very strong person. And, and one of the things uh, I discovered in writing her, I was going through grief counseling when I was writing uh, Bullet in the Chamber. And, um, you know, people ask me all the time why I write as a woman. And so I've got the, you know, the superficial answer that, uh, uh, which is true that when I first started to write, someone suggested that I write in a way that stretches who I am. And so writing as a woman seemed to be the way to do that. So then I'm able to write as a woman because I've had so many women in my life at, at CNN, for example, was there for 25 years. So you've got 25 years of interns cycling through and they, many of them would talk to me about their families and their careers and their boyfriends and I would listen to their stories and those voices would then be embedded in my subconscious 
And then uh, as an added benefit, many of those women would read early drafts of the manuscripts to give me feedback on that. So Lark as a character uh, became more and more authentic because of the contributions that the women and women friends in my life were making. So, um, but as I was talking to my grief counselor about this, uh, one of the things that happens in grief counseling is that it just brings up a lot of stuff. And as you know, from fast track, the first chapter deals with, uh, the suicide of Lark's aunt Annie, who raised Lark from infancy when Lark's parents were killed in a car accident. Well, um, that first scene is basically the suicide of my sister 35 years ago. But, and so, of course, writing about that was something of a catharsis. But the interesting thing that I learned in grief counseling is that I'd never really dealt with my sister's death. And so one of the things I discovered, John, and this, was, this goes so deep in your subconscious that you don't, I, I didn't realize it until later, that I, in creating Lark and giving her situations and, and not letting her be defined, not letting her define herself by some guy, uh, but giving her sort of strength and integrity, I, I, I found myself writing a woman who I wish my sister had allowed herself to become. And I never consciously sought to do that when I started writing. I only discovered it after two and a half years of, uh, of grief counseling and four novels. Very strange how the subconscious works. Yeah, I mean, I think when you start going into those kinds of realms and all of a sudden you start opening yourself up, you don't even realize, like you said, like what's buried deep kind mm-hmm. of within, and then those mm-hmm. things start coming out. But, I mean, and I think your characters kind of realize that too when you start writing them, and now like you, you know, you're four books in. So there's a lot of information that you have about Lark. There's a lot of information that's going on about the series, and of course you always have those tangents that go on when you're writing a series is, you know, you always have the protagonist going on with their lives and how they're progressing, but it's always mixed up within the story that's happening at that particular time. And, and it's a very uh, hard thing to have to do. You know, I mean, uh, when you're writing series, you kind of have to leave those things in, in progression parallel where one storyline goes all the way through the books and the other one, of course, you know, is this book and then this book and then this book. So mm-hmm. when, when you're th- so when you're when you're thinking about and and you're putting together stories, how are you able to craft them around you know Lark and put them in to make sure like you know to kind of make sure that it does fit with who she is because you don't want to go too far off the rails because then it's tough to bring that back. Right, and and it's it's a process, and it uh, a lot of times when a, when people read books, they're they marvel at how it just, you know, sort of flows so smoothly. But um, it's sort of looking at a tapestry from, you know, from one direction. But from the writer's perspective, the other side of the tapestry is incredibly gnarled and ugly and and pretty messy. And so the that's the challenge because, um, you know, there are two schools of thought on writing. There's the you know, there's the planner that, you know, scopes everything out and, you know, uh, plans each detail. And then there's the seat of the pantser, the person who just sort of, you know, writes stream of consciousness. And uh, I've become sort of a, I used to be a planner, 
uh, but I became more comfortable with seat of the pantsing. And so now I'm sort of a planter, I guess you could say, because in the fourth <laughs> novel, <laughs> in the fourth novel, I had an idea of who the bad guy was and, and all of that. But when you write first person, that narrows your point of view. And so it, it makes it more difficult for Lark to figure out who the bad guy is and what to do about it. So I found that in spite of all my best efforts at planning, probably halfway through writing the first draft, whenever I would, I had no idea where I was going. And so I have, when I, I didn't find the next step until I actually started writing a chapter. And when I started writing a chapter, I didn't know how it was going to end. And it went like that all the way through the second half of writing, you know, the first draft of the fourth novel. And, and even to the point where I got to the last paragraph and didn't really know how I was going to button it up because it could have gone in three different directions. And so yeah. um, the difficulty is making those decisions and you sort of are making them in real time, you know, as you write. And, and, and at least in my experience, now, um, I, I have to leave a certain degree of ambiguity or at least be open, you know, to the inspiration that comes in the process of writing. But if, but I'm not the kind of person who can just, you know, look at an empty page and have no idea at all of anything, because that kind of writing to me is just like spinning my wheels and I don't feel like I'm making any progress. So it's a it's a process and it's an evolutionary process. Now, of course, you know you've been involved in journalism for you know forty five years, twenty five of them at CNN, and of course you have seen the face of journalism change. Of course, with the internet and how everything has been different, but now with this new political cycle that's come up, I mean the media has been in the forefront of fake news or propaganda and all these other things. And, you know, you have a lot of, um, you know, things in the book, of course, you know, Lark, you know, White House Press um, and in the room and, and, you know, this is like what her job. So when you're writing these kind of journalism things and, and you're putting, you know, the, the reader front and center to kind of have an idea of what it's like maybe behind the scenes, how, how, what's the challenge because with the environment so different now today, because and, and it's still a thriller, so you still have to have the thrilling aspect because, I mean, 90% of the jobs that people think are glamorous are really boring. It's only the 10% that they see is like, oh, I want to do that. Yeah, well, there's 90% that, you know, that, that, that's kind of boring. So how challenging was it for you to, to kind of, you know, write a, about a journalist in today's society where – journalists are being attacked for everything that they do well that also makes for better stories because of the, can, yeah. those particular attacks but we you're right we we're really now in a new phase of journalism and um one of the things i noticed during this last election cycle where uh, uh especially in the engagements that i had with people on facebook you know i've discovered that most people who seem to have the strongest opinions about bias in the media haven't a clue about what really goes on behind the scenes and how how careful you know most journalists are to try to be accurate in their reporting and there is so much uh you know there's so much give and take between reporters and editors 
that uh, that the general public doesn't see. There's so much that's not reported because it can't be confirmed. And so those are some of the things that I tackle in Fast Track and, and in subsequent uh, books and the one I'm dealing with that I'm writing right now, the fifth novel, that I don't even have a title for it yet. But the you know most people think that we sat around at CNN and said, how are we going to get Barack Obama elected? And it's not like that. It's not like that at all. Right. Um, most of the time, at least when I worked overnights, we talked more about getting enough sleep than we did talking about the news. Um, and I think, the, I think right now in journalism, journalism is really going through uh, a change. Uh, I think a major change, sort of a self, self-reflection and because I think some mistakes were made during this past election, I think that uh, people, I think a lot of journalists treated Trump as sort of entertainment as opposed to really a serious candidate. So by the time it became obvious that he really was going to be the Republican nominee, uh, the fact checking aspect of it really hadn't kicked in seriously enough. That said, I think that there's also. Uh, an understandable skepticism about journalism and journalists. And I think that's, that's probably healthy in one sense, but I think it's become toxified because Trump has, uh, in a sense, demonized reporters as well. Um, and so that's made it much more difficult. But um, I think journalists just need to get back to basics and, uh, you know, there's an axiom in journalism that says, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. And so um, that's going to be, I think, where we go from here. Um, and I think that really, when you come right down to it, people want information they can trust. The problem now is that they are more prone to information that they believe and that reinforces their own biases. And, you right. know, if you think journalists are biased, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the general public uh, is is woefully biased in one direction or the other on one extreme or the other. And that's true, whether it's the extreme right or the extreme left, they become they insulate themselves from alternative opinions. And so um, it seems to me going forward uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up on this because I could probably write a book about it. But um, I think that at least television journalism changed gradually over the years. One example is the Today Show used to be under the um, uh, in the in, uh, out of the uh, NBC News division, and after a while, it changed, and the entertainment division began to produce. Uh, the Today Show. And gradually over time, more and more j- television journalism is about ratings and it's about entertainment, being entertaining. And I saw that inside at CNN. It, for the longest time, you know, presidents would come and go uh, at CNN and they would all say ratings don't matter. But near the end of my tenure there four years ago, they started to say ratings do matter. And producers whose jobs, they're standing on the trap door because if their ratings aren't, aren't up, you know, the trap door opens and they're gone. So there's a lot of pressure to do what they call good TV. 
And good TV means visual. It means conflict. And so you, had a, you have a lot of pundits. And to be fair, CNN at least balances the pundits on the left and the right. But you're having more and more pundits and less and less news gathering. All too often, sure. the reporter isn't able to gather the news because they're tethered to a live shot where they have to just regurgitate what's, uh, you know, what the talking point uh, of the day is, and they don't get a chance to do as much enterprise reporting. So we're, we're really in a major transition point toward what I hope will be more responsible, fact-based uh, journalism. Well, John, I knew that this was going to go extremely fast, and we have come to the end, and I want to thank you so much for, you know, because I could just sit here and, you know, and talk about this stuff, of course, for, for hours, too, because it is so entertaining. But the good thing is, is that we have your book, Bullet in the Chamber, uh, that's out now, again, book four of the Lark Chadwick Mystery Series. You can read all four books if you like. Of course, go back and check out the entire series, but... John, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Look forward to seeing what you got going on in the future. So stay in touch, and we'll chat again. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed it. All right. You have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. So again, everybody, that is author John Dedakis, and you can visit him at johndedakis.com, D-E-D-A-K-I-S. Again, the, the book is called Bullet in the chamber you can go get it now we are going to take a short break and we will be back with our next guest edward k so until then here you go
welcome everybody here after the break. Again, we want to thank you for joining us, however, wherever, whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you with us. Of course, you can check out all the shows on demand by simply just going to blogtalkradio.com slash suspense magazine and all of our, I think it's 425 episodes, whatever we have on this thing, are all there. Um, and that includes all of our shows, Crime and Science Radio, Story Blender, Beyond the Cover, and, of course, Inside Edition. So you can listen to as much author play as you would like to. We are joined here by our latest guest. His name is Edward Kay. Um, he came over from Crooked Lane Books, and they're a publisher that, that's relatively new in the last couple of years, and we've been kind of getting a lot more stories from them, and, and they have really been up in their game. And the latest book from Edward is called At Ropes In. It's a James Verde mystery series. So we want to thank um, Edward so much for coming on. So, Edward, thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you, John? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, Great. I'm still worried that that the wind might whip my house up and send me to Oz. But other than that, uh, the Santa Ana's out here in California, you know, are very, very strong, and that's what we're going through. But you deal with paradise, I guess, right? You've got to have to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> you have – I mean, we, we have snow here and, you know – uh, 25 degrees. So you you kind of pick where, are you in Seattle? Uh, actually, I'm in Toronto. I'm oh, in Toronto oh, right yeah. now. I lived on uh, the West Coast for a number of years, and Seattle is one of my favorite cities. So that's why uh, at Ropes End is set there. Plus, you know, they have a, a history of uh, producing a lot of serial killers. And one of the things I know from living on the West Coast. Uh, it's an interesting environment in terms of, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but it's kind of oppressive and it's a perfect sort of a setting for something like this. It's, it's almost claustrophobic in a way, the way you have the mountains and, you know, gigantic trees and lots of places to hide bodies. There is. And now, and this is your, and this is the first book in in your series. It is. In fact, um, it's my first, uh, it's my first, crime novel i've written two ya novels uh or that one of them was historical and the other sci-fi so this is my first entry into crime fiction so now that you've kind of so so now that you've done it and you kind of put it out there like you said you you know you set this in seattle and james veriday is the character that you decided would be your lead in your latest uh adventure here in the crime fiction with at ropes end Tell us about what you got going on. Well, I'm uh, starting on the the second book now, and uh, you know my plan is to take it to a series. And James Veriday, as a character, is a composite of a few different people I know and and people that I've created. But he's based in part on an actual forensic psychologist I know who. Uh, they're, they're, they're an interesting bunch because unlike the police, they don't necessarily, or like the defense, like they don't necessarily, they don't, they don't have um, any particular position other than wanting to seek out the truth. And so the forensic psychologist I know is Dan Yarmy, who's a professor at Guelph University and has um, done a lot of academic writing and been hired a lot as an expert witness in the United States, and he's the kind of guy who's very committed to the truth. And when he's brought in, sometimes he'll run afoul of the prosecution and sometimes of the defense 
because people will hire him thinking that they're going to buy his expert witness testimony, which, I mean, they don't get the result they necessarily want. So I really loved the idea of a character like who is incorruptible by his nature. Mm-hmm. And my background is in journalism. That's my training. And one of the things that's interesting, because I just came in at the tail end of your previous guest, and in Canada, there is much less of a tradition of, at least not in the 20th and 21st century, of there being overt bias in news. We're kind of boring compared to you guys south of the border. Um, <laughs> that kind of, like, we don't really have the polarity in the channels. You don't really see extreme left, not extreme right. We're very centrist. And... Um, you know, when obviously the media make their mistakes here too, but in general, the attitude is to find the truth. And that's a pretty strong ethic in the news media in general. And um, that being my background, I wanted a protagonist who really was, uh, I mean, he's got lots of personal problems. If you read the book, like this is not a guy who doesn't have issues, but when it comes to the truth, that is the one point of clarity for him. Yeah, I mean, of course, the media, and especially in Toronto, is just waiting for the Maple Leafs to finally win the Stanley Cup again. So they're just well, they're, they're going to have a long way. They got the stories ready. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. Well, but, like like I said, they're going to have a very long wait. I, I don't think uh, yeah. I, I'll see it in my lifetime. <laughs> you know, you just never know. But the one thing that, of course, you know, which uh, which you've done is you you know you've you've teamed up. You know your doctor, James Faraday, um, which you, you know you mentioned as a deeply troubled forensic uh, psychologist from uh, University of Washington, and then you put them in a situation with a homicide detective. Now, of course, those two have a little bit of uh, play together, except you have one on the front lines, you kind of have one kind of behind the scenes. So when you were looking at the relationship that was going to happen between James and Constance, how did you kind of think that that might? Uh, progress and did it work maybe the way that you thought or did these characters you know change their mind and kind of had the mind of their own well it's interesting that you say that because uh, one of the things that I've always found fascinating one of my uncles was the deputy chief of the Ottawa police which is like our version of Washington DC and so you know he had to deal with some very difficult situations and I was very sympathetic to him and you know even when I was in journalism school I would actually go down to the police station in the middle of the night to see what was going on in the way of stories and journalists often have an antagonistic relationship with the police like when I was a junior reporter and I'd call into the police station to see what was going on they would always razz me you know they would always think that you're some morbid ghoul who's calling them in the middle of the night to find out who's been killed. And that is part of your job. But you're also, I mean, people want to know the news. And you do end up the kind of meeting in the middle because when you're around cops any length of time, you see that they're in very difficult situations that most people aren't put into. Um, so there's a bit of both, you know, like you realize that there is a kind of a meeting in the middle because uh, we don't live in an ideal world and people are not automatons and uh, p- 
people have emotions, including people in positions of authority. Uh, so that makes them fascinating. But in terms of Verity and McLean, they started out with uh, a fair degree of polarity. And then each of them, over the course of the stories, I think begins to appreciate each other's attributes and even begins to see each other's point of view more. Now, you said that, of course, you know, you had written a couple YA's historical and science fiction, and this was your first, you know, uh, this, this is your first effort here into, into the adult crime uh, genre. So what were your challenges? You know, what were the things that, you know, maybe you weren't going into thinking, I can do this, things kind of maybe changed direction, but what was kind of your challenges when, in writing this book? Well, my challenge was really that I had been away from that world for a long, long time. I, I went to journalism school. I used to do the graveyard shift at a major city paper. And then I ended up writing television and a lot of television comedy and political satire. And uh, there was a show for uh, Disney that I did called Jimmy Two Shoes, a, a, an animated comedy. So part of it was just getting reacquainted with that world and developing contacts. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of themes I wanted to deal with. I mean, I actually do a lot of kids writing and um, which I love, but there was a point at which I wanted to address certain things going on in the world that I couldn't do in the context of a kid's show. So the challenge was really, it was finding people who knew what they were talking about. And I was very, very fortunate because I found um, I, I have an acquaintance who worked in victim services. So that that's uh, she's embedded with the police department, but her job is when there's, for example, a homicide, uh, she advises the victim's families on what resources, what kind of help is available. So through her, I was able to find out a lot about the protocol of what happens. And then I met a former police detective, a female police detective, and I'd already had the idea for McLean. And I really just wanted, uh, I wanted to get expert advice on what a detective's protocol would be. You know, what, what kind of equipment do they have? Do they go out in pairs or by themselves? And to my surprise, some of the experiences that McLean had in the police department um, actually happened to this source of mine in real life. So it wasn't uh, some of the internal struggles that McLean faces within the department. I had already written. And then when I started comparing notes with this person who was advising me, I was really surprised to find out that the exact things had happened to her which she told me about, I think we'd probably done about five interviews by the time she finally admitted this because they were difficult things to talk about. But yeah, that was, and so that's kind of the challenge is gaining my, like one of my previous books was an historical novel. And I, uh, I found people who had gone through this particular experience that I was writing about, uh, which was the second world war. And, you know, it's that fantastic feeling when you finally gain somebody's trust to the point where they say, you know what, that thing in your book, that happened to me. And then they start giving you this amazing 
uh, material that makes your book so much more realistic and and relevant, I hope. And when you're thinking about going for because you said you want this to kind of be a series, and, and let me first remind everybody that we're speaking here with author Edward Kay and his latest book, newest, uh, actually debut book in the crime fiction, is called At Ropes In with his character, Dr. James Veraday. You can go to veraday.com, V-E-R-R-A-D-A-Y.com to find out more information. And, you know, and, and then i got to bring this up because the one thing that you have on your site and looking at it is you have – um, kind of like a slideshow of pictures. Now, right. I would think that, that, and then the pictures kind of go along with the story. But how did you kind of, um, you know, decide, you know, to kind of tell the story a little bit that way and like, you know, like these 10 slides kind of going forward? Um, kind of, you know, give us a little bit of the meaning behind of, you know, of, of those, because when you see this slide, it's like you see the one where it's, you know, Occupy Wall Street and we are the 99%. You know, how do these kind of images fit into the book when someone is going to look at this? Sure. Well, one of the things that I loved about Seattle as a location is that it's one of the few places I know where, and I, I've spent quite a bit of time there over the last 10 years. Um, it has, it's, it's, you know, it has a very strong liberal element and a very strong conservative element. So it tends to be a flashpoint for varying social ideas. So to me, because there's an inherent conflict in that city that there isn't in a lot of other cities in the world. Um, so it seemed like a perfect uh, metaphorical environment and a real environment for the kind of tension that would like the background level of tension that I wanted to establish between initially Verity and McLean and also the systems that they're working with in. So it's, it's really a way of showing I mean, part of what goes on in the novel is there's an aspect of police corruption, um, which McLean is above. She uh, is very idealistic, but she's working within a system where corruption exists. And there's this confluence uh, between opposing views. And so that political background is one of the things that I think ratchets up the tension in the book. So that's, that's why that's there. Plus there is within the story itself, one of the reasons Verde is so mistrustful of the police is that he's been knocked down while doing research at an Occupy movement. So it actually is part of the story. Yeah. I think that the, that the pictures really give a great, visual aspect of the book of course when reading and i think that that's always important you know especially in today's day and age where it seems like everything has to be visual you know you have to see the instagram and you have to see facebook and you have to see everything has to be so so visual uh people almost stop using their imagination and, and I, that's kind of it's kind of bad in a way so it's good that you were kind of be able to kind of have that visual aspect to help along you know with the reader and, and kind of getting a little bit more in depth into, you know, you know, your mind and what you were thinking and what you hope the reader gets out of this book. I think, I think that's really true. I mean, a lot of it is that um, I'm trying to create the mood 
especially. Mm-hmm. And then part of it is that um, I write a lot of television. That's, I mean, I probably, you know, I love writing novels, but television is what I do day in, day out. And so it's a really visual medium. And I tend to think as much in images as I do in words. So I think that probably comes through in my writing as well. Yeah, the the one thing that's funny when you say you write for television, because I have a friend of ours that um, is uh, like an executive producer and, and, you know, and a writer of some really, you know, popular shows, um, one very popular out there right now. And he always used to say that, you know, in writing a novel on the TV, he goes, I can set up a TV scene with no words by having a guy walk into a church and literally maybe spitting in the holy water, and you know right then and there that guy's evil. He goes, but now I have to explain that same scene in a book with no visual. And he goes, that's more difficult to do in a novel, so you get that same sense of this guy's evil. So do you kind of have that kind of same you know, problem, some of that same challenges when, when, when you're like, hey, I can do this in TV really easy, but in the novel, it's not so easy. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, it's incredible how long it can take. Uh, I mean, because my actually uh, at Rope's End has been optioned as a television series, and so in oh, fact, great. it's in the process of being adapted. Thank you. Yeah, it's with uh, Seven Twenty Four. Um, they're the company that um, does Winona Earp for Sci-Fi, oh, which is yep. I think it's been doing quite well uh, for Sci-Fi, and it's going into its second season now. So. It's in development, and the prologue of At Rope's End, I don't have the book in front of me, but I think it's about six pages long. And uh, I won't say what it is because I don't want to give it away. I want people to read it, but I can say this. In the screenplay, uh, it's about a page long, and there's no dialogue. It's just Mm -hmm. a bunch of description of images. And um, that's a huge difference. I mean, I suppose the one big advantage when you're writing a novel that you cannot do in television or film is you can tell the reader what someone's thinking. That's probably the big, although, you know, I try not to do that as much as possible. I try not to do that because, you know, there, there is a belief in film and television storytelling that um, it's people's choices. It's the choices that the character makes that reveal who they are. So, as much as I can, I try to use actions that let the reader make his or her own decision about what that person's like. But in terms of the visual, yeah, I mean, I love writing visual description. Um, and I think the challenge is to make it economical. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, everybody has their own mind's eye, so you never really know if your reader is seeing the same thing in their head that you are. But you hope they are. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're seeing something even better. But that's, uh, that's true. But I try to make, I try to bring enough clarity to it that um, you know that it really paints a picture. Now uh, we've been talking a lot about Verde and McLean, but there's always those secondary characters in the books, the ones that have those larger roles that maybe you didn't think would when you decided when you were starting to to create this world. What character do you think stands out uh, that fits that description the best in the book at Rope's End? Yeah, that's, I'm really glad you mentioned that because there is a character that my agent and my publisher and the television production company have all said, wow, this, and it's actually Verade's 
uh, older sister, Penny. And um, she is uh, paraplegic. She evolved very interestingly. Um, I had an uncle who was a paraplegic, so, and I, I lived with him uh, when I was a teenager working for him. So I got to know uh, not just the limitations of paraplegics, but, you know, some of the pretty amazing things that he could do. And so I was able to write about her in a really naturalistic way. And she's sort of, but she evolved, you know, like she started out almost as um, the moralistic older sister. And I started to not like her actually. And I thought, oh, I've got to do something with her to make her more fun, you know? And so I added certain, I gave her a playfulness that, um, that James Verity doesn't have. I mean, he's had some tragic things and then he's, you know, he has an interesting personal life, but he doesn't have the sense of fun that she does. Like she's overcome the tragedy and she's worked through it. So she ended up being this character that I'm really interested in revisiting. Like she's the kind of character that uh, will go in her wheelchair to a steampunk convention and she buys herself a Porsche Cayman and has it rigged up so she can use it with hand controls. And she's actually in most ways more successful than her younger brother. Um, and she's happy about life, you know? And, and so it was really fun developing her. Um, and it give you know, it's a great way to have very naturalistic conversations because, you know, a lot of people are very close to their siblings and so they can have these very natural conversations where, you know, she can prick him and prod him just the right amount and he'll take it because it's his sister and he loves her, you know, and, and she's a very inquisitive kind of person, um, which he is too, but he's not used to being put under the microscope the way he does to other people. And, you know, moving so forward, of course, of in the series, and I'm sure moving forward in the series, you're going to see a lot more Penny. Um, and there's going to be probably, you're probably going to have to expand her role a little bit. I, it's very possible because people like her so much and, um, she's a really good foil, you know? Uh, so when she kind of went from being this moralistic person to being a lot of fun, you know, and, uh, I mean, a great role model, um, but also a very realistic person. She has her foibles. You know, there's a, right. a scene <clears throat> where they uh, kind of get their revenge. It's, you know, very mild revenge on the person who killed their mother. So you think she's above it, but actually she's capable of having her own kind of playfully dark feelings. So we're coming, kind of, kind of coming down to the end here, so I want to kind of give you – the opportunity to kind of talk about like maybe the future of the series, you know, uh, uh, you're writing book two. Now I take it. A lot of people always, you know, don't realize that. Yeah. Once book one is done, book two is always coming in the works. And even though this book is out now and you're talking about it, you're probably already kind of into book two and getting into that. So what can people expect to see in the future here um, with the series moving forward? Uh, well, there is a certain amount of romantic involvement uh, potentially, uh, between uh, McLean and Veraday, there's always going to be sexual tension between them um, because even though they start off not quite as polar opposites, but they have a pretty prickly relationship 
initially. Um, that's something that I haven't decided that that might happen. Uh, P. Verde will be, because he's cracked this big case uh, for the Seattle Police Department, in the future, he'll be able to work. He won't be working in secret. He'll be able to work more openly. So that's going to make for some interesting dynamics. So he'll be able to be right on the scene when they're doing their investigations. He won't be, he won't be a Svengali anymore. He'll be more directly involved with McLean. And, and so I will still be... The... Oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to... No, no, no. no. Fin- finish your thought. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it'll still be... I, I have an interest in serial killers because... It's a purely practical reason. I mean, I think that people, sounds funny when people say all, that. Though I have an interest in serial killers. That always sounds funny to me. When I always love when people say, <laughs> that. "I love murder." <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think I think everyone's. You know, we're all justifiably terrified of them. And um, you know, I was mulling this over. I thought, well, why? There are those sort of cozy murder mysteries, you know, set in a little sure. English village somewhere. But I think the reason that like, for example, in, in, at Rope's End, that's the argument that McLean uses to play on Veraday's conscience when he initially turns her down. You know, she makes a point about serial killers, like, if you don't help me, this is going to happen again. And right, that, right. that, to me, is what makes them interesting because it's an ongoing process. Like, you, you, you're not just looking for justice for one person who's been murdered, there's also the living to consider because you're putting them in danger if you don't catch the killer. Right. Well, I want to give you like the last 30 seconds here to kind of give us, um, you know, the last word of where the best place is for people to find out a lot more information about your writing and what you have going on. Sure. Well, um, I would say veriday.com. Is an excellent uh, place. Crooked Lane Books has a website as well. I have a Facebook page for Veriday at Rope's End. You can find it there, and I'm always updating that. So I would say that um, those are the those are the best places. And uh, you can even look on my personal Facebook page, Edward K. I'm always uh, posting there as well. Awesome. Well, Edward, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, you know, hey, congratulations and good luck here with, with the first book. It's always a daunting task and to get yourself out there and start talking about these kinds of things. And, you know, you're kind of getting beh- away from behind the camera now. Now you're out there in full front, uh, uh, you know, the full Monty out there doing it. So good luck and congratulations. Can't wait to see what you got coming in the future. So stay in touch. I will. Thanks so much, John. Good to talk to you. All right. Bye-bye. So again, everybody, that is author Edward Kay, and the latest book is called At Ropes End. Make sure you go to veriday.com for more information, and that's V-E-R-R-A-D-A-Y.com for more information on uh, the latest book, At Ropes End. And of course, it is available now, so you can pick it up wherever you buy books. We're going to take a short break. We're going to be back here with our next guest, John Hegenberger. We've had John on before. Um, and we're going to talk about not only is his, his big win here that came up in 2016 with his novel Spyfall, but he has a new one out called Stormfall. So we are going to check in with John and see what's going on with him. In the meantime, you can check this out. Won't you-
everybody here after the break we really again want to thank you of course for listening however wherever whenever you listen to the show make sure you check out blogtalkradio.com slash suspense magazine all of the shows in demand uh right to wherever you are listening and how you listen to we have all the shows for you and again kensingtonbooks.com that's where we want you to visit and check out them they are the sponsor for the shows here that we have on Suspense Radio, kensingtonbooks.com, to check out everything they have on it. So we've had John on here before, John Hegenberger, and he has talked about his novels, his Stan Wade P.I. novels. Um, his latest is now called Stormfall. Spyfall won the Silver Falcone Award, which is given out at the Killer Nashville Award, um, uh, the Killer Nashville um, uh, Book Conference, which is go- always goes on in Nashville, of course. And this time it was uh, in August, so it's always around that time. If you haven't been to Killer Nashville, it's a great book conference. And, you know, there's about ten of them that go on during the year that are just great to visit. So we want to welcome John back to the show. So, John, thanks so much, man. How you doing? I'm great, John. Uh, thanks for having me back on again. It's always fun to talk with you and uh, share some of the insights and goofy stuff that happens when I'm writing one of my books. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of people say it's it's great to talk to me, so that's very nice for you to say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, we've we've kind of followed your career. You know, we've talked with you, uh, you know, before, of course, with 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 your novels here. You know, with Supervall, and, and you know, we've gotten into Stan Wade, mm-hmm. but now, of course, Spyfall has won that award. I mean, that's got to just yeah. be um, incredible with you being able to to kind of put that little notch in your in your belt buckle, huh? Yeah, I was I was floored, um, and, and I honestly hadn't thought about how like important it is sometimes to to win an award uh, until it happened. And the result of that is that um, I can say things like uh, on the book cover now it says stuff like award winning author, blah blah blah. You know, sure. I'm like well, I never even thought of something like that before. I was just pushing nouns against verbs and having fun, you know, and. Now it's got this uh, badge of honor or something associated with it. I'm still getting used to it. And, you know, and it was the fourth book in the series because Stormfall is, is the fifth book now. 
But with the fourth book in the series, I mean, um, do, do you kind of have an idea of maybe why it was this one that hit? You know, I've, I've always been fascinated to kind of understand, you know, why do you think that it took, you know, four books in Spyfall? Do you think that maybe it was your writing style? Do you see yourself, you know, progressing as an author that you kind of came out and you're like, you know what, uh, I finally maybe found my style and, and Spyfall was kind of like the, you know, kind of reaching the summit of that and that's what it was. Do you have any idea? Well, uh, weirdly enough, we were just sitting here before the call talking about pretty much that same topic about how uh, you write a, a book, you get it published, and then maybe you write a second one, you get that published, and you go back and you look at the first one and you find out uh, you're a better writer than you, you used to be. And uh, right. the progression of uh, an improvement, uh, I think, sneaks up on you. you. You're not really aware of it while you're doing it, but if you stop a moment and go back and look, like uh, uh, I looked at uh, the manuscript of Stormfall, uh, which uh, comes out today, um, officially, and uh, oh yeah, that's right. I, yeah, so I, I wrote that uh, about a year ago, and it takes that long sometimes to get you know a book published. <clears throat> I looked at the manuscript again for the kind of for the first time, uh, even though I, I proofed it and gone through the editing process. I got serious enough to sit down and actually read the book today, and it's a year after I wrote it. And I found myself wincing several times. I would turn the page and go like, "Ew, I, I wouldn't say it that way today." Or, "Ooh, um, I would have uh, timed that gag to have a better punchline rather than just boom, putting it out there on page 92 or whatever it is." So, you find that uh, you're a better writer just by doing it. So, I would suggest to anybody, uh, all writers, um, one of the best things about writing is that you, you grow. You do learn things as you go maybe unconsciously, and uh, I think it helps you appreciate other people's work a lot better because now you you see stuff that they uh, they put in their books that maybe you wouldn't have thought of or noticed at all if you weren't trying to, to push down against the verb to yourself. So I'm, I'm all, all for uh, for writing even if it doesn't get published. It's, it's a good, healthy, fun, it might even be psychologically uh, healthy to do some, some writing and stuff. So anyway... A long, long answer, yeah. Things do get better, and, and uh, Spyfall, I think, was better than the first couple of books that I wrote. I think the one that's out today is better again. Um, and it isn't so much that the story has progressed and gotten better, it's that my skills and ability and craft has improved. Well, let's get into Stormfall now that the book is officially out today. This book is set in October 1959. Uh, your, your previous books have all been set in... Um, in that year, uh, you know, kind of dating back, kind of moving forward, and now, and now you're in, uh, into October. So tell us what yep. uh, you got going on with Stan Wade here in Book 5. Um, well, all the titles begin with the letter S, and they all have the word fall in them. Uh, Spyfall, Stormfall, Starfall, uh, Spy, what I say? Spacefall, I think? I don't know. I don't it, remember. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> anyway. Um, the fall is in there because he's a private eye, and you know, private eyes they gotta take the fall. You know, he's gotta be a fall guy. Uh, the S, I don't know why it's in there, but anyway, uh, it's a sequence that I've, I've created and carried through all five of the books now, and we're up to October with this character in 1959 LA. Um, I always liked Los Angeles. I think I mentioned once before that 
uh, our family drove out there in 1959, and I was like a kid of about nine or eleven or something. And mm-hmm. it was like it was like going to paradise in a way. So I'm trying to emulate that date and that place, uh, and have fun with with the private eye uh, genre. Uh, so in this book, uh, I stretch him a little bit out in different places, and I got to do a structural thing that I hadn't done before in that there's three sections to the book. Um, and uh, the, the title of the sections are uh, Storm, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, Dust Storm, uh, Brainstorm, and Snowstorm. So that's, that takes you back to the title Stormfall, right? Um, and in those three sections, there are almost three novellas, although they're very tightly put together to, to really create a novel. Um, but the character progresses from uh, Dust Storm, where he's out in Texas. He gets hired by John Ford to help uh, John Wayne uh, solve a murder that took place during the filming of the Alamo. Uh, and it's an actual murder. Uh, it's one of the rare occasions I think I've ever heard of where there was actually a murder that took place during the filming of, of a big box office movie. Lots and lots of books, you know, behind the scenes characters who are involved in Hollywood and uh, make-believe murder mystery movies. But uh, this is an actual crime that took place in October 59 and stands out there working on it uh, in a place called Brackettville, which is actually where the Alamo movie was filmed. Uh, They had built that enormous set out there. But from that, he encounters uh, some problems that lead him to go to San Francisco uh, so he's out of L.A. again, and this time he's in, in uh, San Francisco where he's chasing down the people that uh, were involved with the murder back in Texas. And he's assisted uh, in San Francisco because he don't know San Francisco. He knows L.A. Uh, right. So he's assisted by uh, – and, and for people who don't know, just because you live in California, I live in L.A., and San Francisco is like a whole other world, a whole yeah. other world. Exactly. So he, he needed somebody to kind of guide him through some of the places and get get where he needed to go. And, and he encounters a guy named Phil K. Dick, uh, who uh, was there then, 1959 October. So the reality of that uh, actual murder in Texas in October 59 carries over to the reality of what Phil K. Dick was doing up in San Francisco in 1959. And then in the last section, oh, in that one, that, that middle section, that's the brainstorm because – we get involved with some LSD, early stuff that goes on, which I want to share with you. I did research on this and found the earliest use of a government military uh, use of uh, LSD was right here at Patel Institute in Columbus, Ohio. And that brought me home. So I had had to get that into the story. It was in in, uh, 59, of course. So we move from that finally to the third part of the book, which uh, is Snowfall, and that takes us back to L.A., and uh, the snow comes in because we have to do some nonsense up around Mount Baldy. Yeah, and of course, you know, Mount Baldy right now is snow-covered because <laughs> we've had so yes. much rain. Well, and uh, and, you know, a, lot of, and a lot of people don't know that Mount Baldy, I, I believe it's around 12,000 feet tall, and that's the tallest point in L.A. Yep. County. Um, it's not very far it's just kind of down the street. Take take, take the two ten out, and you can just drive right on up yes. it. But yeah, I mean, it, it's fun to see all those little facts because uh, I live here, and I like to see all those little cool things. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I remember uh, being out there one time years ago, and uh, it was around Christmas, and people were driving their trucks up to the top of Mount Baldwin and loading up the, the, the back of their pickups with snow and rushing back down oh, the yeah. highway to get get home and build a snowman before it melts 20 minutes later. But it's, oh, it's yeah. Great oh, yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wild. I mean, you don't think that, of course, and – you know, sunny California that you're going to have that, you know, right in your back door. But, yeah, that is the great thing about California. You can surf in the morning, go skiing in the afternoon, and then, you know, yeah. and then at night you can go back down to the beach and have a bonfire. So, you know, you can kind of do all those things, and that's what makes it, you know, so unique. But now for people who don't really know Stan Wade as a person uh, and are just maybe finding out new to the series, of course, especially you're going to have a whole bunch of new fans you know, with your win from Killer Nashville that people are like, who's this John Hagenberger guy? What the hell? Who the hell is this Stan Wade guy? How does Stan Wade kind of progress from, you know, book one now through book five? Uh, give us the background of, of him so people have a better understanding of who he is as a person. That's a great setup. Thanks. Okay. Uh, and in fact, uh, I, I do pay attention to that. And uh, in the very first book, uh, that was Starfall. Um, he was an apprentice, if you will, private eye, uh, and he wasn't quite sure what the heck he was doing. And it, it permeates that book quite a bit. In the second book, he's a little more savvy, and now he's almost beginning to question, like, uh, you know, am, is, am I right for this? I mean, I understand what I'm doing pretty well, uh, but I'm, I'm having a crisis of confidence uh, and conscience, wondering whether, you know, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? Because he's only 29. Mm-hmm. Um, by the right. third book, something dramatic happens. He actually uh, has to shoot someone. And uh, not just shoot someone, but kill someone. And it's the first time. And that's a pretty rocking event for him. So once he's decided he wants to do this, now he's faced with the repercussions of uh, actually, you know, fighting crime, and uh, it's no longer right. kid stuff. It's no longer fun, you know. So it gets a little, little dark there. So the character uh, has progressed quite a bit. Now he's pretty proficient. Uh, there's a, a love life uh, to his, to his uh, story, and that's progressing. Uh, we've had a proposal, and uh, in June of 1960. Uh, uh, there should be a June bride that he's involved with, but it's been a rocky road in between. So Zach progresses along over the time. Um, so you know, I try to make him as real as possible. His his office is in the uh, the back of the Brown Derby restaurant. But, uh, the Brown his Derby. Has, <laughs> his girlfriend has um, her own office. She's an investigator too. Uh, her office is on the sixth floor of the Taft building at uh, Hollywood and Vine. And due to circumstances uh, here in Stormfall, he's going to move in with her in the office. And he's a little uncomfortable about that because, you know, private eyes pretty much are loners. He's, uh, sure. he's more like rostered out of his trailer, if you will, you know. He's not like those uh, slick guys that were on TV in 1959, like Stuart Bailey and 77 Sunset Strip or Peter Gunn. Uh, he's he's uh, just barely making it. That's why he's in the back of the dumb brown derby restaurant. Uh, so that's that's the arc of the character thus far, pretty much. Uh, there's yeah. been some stuff about his past, his, his parents, who uh, mysteriously died in a car crash. 
uh, way back in uh, like 47. And uh, he's done some investigation with that. Uh, so the, the character is quite, quite mature now. In fact, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder where I could take him next uh, and not just have him be just a normal guy, you know. I, I want him to have some personality other than just a guy that goes to work every day. Right. I mean, I, and so, you know, w- when you're in the book five, that, this is when you start, you know, thinking about those, those, you know, those things that you can kind of do. Um, it's like you, you, you kind of almost have to reinvent them a little bit. You've got to give them a little bit of new jump. So how, yeah. what have you been thinking about kind of the series kind of going forward? I mean, how, how has that thought process kind of changed, you know, now maybe what you thought to maybe what it's going to be now? What, 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 what have you been doing? Well, these are light comedies uh, for the most part. Uh, my other series here in Columbus uh, with a private eye, it, they're more noir and dark and, and serious. Um, and I may uh, I may have done all the jokes that I can think of uh, with Stan Wade. So book six is uh, tentatively being called Stanfall, and it may in fact be the last book of the series. So really? maybe he won't even get he may not even get to that that wedding in, in June. You know. So we'll now, why, now why do you that. think the last book? Now, why do you think the last book? Are you, are you just decided that you're going to move on? Yeah, sort of. Uh, maybe move out of PI stuff and move more toward thrillers. Okay. Multi-characters, uh, away from first person, uh, more toward third person. Uh, lots of good reasons to try other stuff. So it's sort of like putting Stan back in the closet and then, once I, I came to that, I said, well, what about the whole fall? Just the heck with it. Why don't we just finish staying off? And literally, we may we may do that. I don't know. I haven't, haven't decided yet. Oh, you're leaving that little teaser in there. Well, I could I could put a poll on, on Amazon or something. And <laughs> Who wants to kill Stanley? <laughs> and and how should it kind of be done? And, you know that's kind of you know and it's kind of bittersweet because it's kind of an end if you decide to do this. Um, you know, I mean, it's an end of of an era for yourself that you know you've been living with for 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 quite some time. So, um, it, it might it'd be a difficult yeah. little thing to I think have to write that. You know, you you're gonna have to write that, and that might be hard to kind of put on the page. Actually, that sounds kind of exciting. That sounds challenging. I mean, I wonder uh, how many other authors who have characters in series, whether they actually sit down and have a have a trunk story somewhere where they, they kill off the character. Conan Doyle was sick of Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah, well, I I know that there was there, and I won't I won't mention the name, but there was a massively big art uh, author that literally did uh, kill his character. And the backlash was so bad from their publishers and whatnot that they were like, yeah, you're never going to do that again. But I think he just wanted to be done. And he was like, I just want to be done. Why can't you just let me be done? And yeah. and it's like, you know, I think you get some of that. And it's like, oh, you know, I, I think that, you know, authors like yourself, you know, you want to be stretched out. You want to do something. I mean, right now you're sitting in an event in a, in a library um, with Sisters in Crime. I mean, you know, are, are you there to try to, are you there to get more tips? Are you there to kind of improve your writing? Because I think a lot of people don't realize what kind of support is right in their own backyard um, if they just look. Well, and you're one of the people that is right there looking at it. Well, that, that's a super idea. I, I, again, I encourage any listeners uh, to follow up on something that's like that locally. Uh, in this case, um, 
you and I had decided we were going to talk on the day the book came out, which is today, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the local group uh, tries to meet every month toward the end of the of the uh, the month, and uh, the stars aligned, and sizey guy, everything, the planets aligned, and turned out to be the same day. And I said, well, um, I'm doing this interview uh, at the same time of the meeting. Wouldn't it be cool? I don't know if anybody's ever done this before. Let's do this, you know. And everybody quickly agreed and said, sure, what the heck, uh, that sounds yeah. unique. Um, but to get to your point, yeah, local uh, support, absolutely necessary. You, you need to get yeah. feedback. Uh, our group sits down and critiques each other's manuscripts and encourages each other to uh, do whatever goals they set out to do, whether it's revising or, or proofing or editing or, or finishing a novel or a short story. Um, that's the big, big deal because, uh, you know, writers sit alone and in a, a cubby hole somewhere usually, and they're all by themselves. Yeah, you guys are alone a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and we like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not complaining. And, and, so, and sometimes and sometimes it's scary to leave you guys alone too. So you just never know. <laughs> yeah, that's where the weird stories come out. Yeah. Now, so so, so you told them that you're that, that you're having this interview, and of course a lot yeah. of them. You know, I mean, they, uh, marketing is such a difficult thing to do. So, do they kind of pick your brain? It was like, how would you get an interview on Suspense Radio? And how, you know, the, you know, so you guys kind of offer those kinds of backgrounds too. I take it. Absolutely. Um, we've got somebody here today who was just talking about the the TV ads that they have running on Sci Fi Channel for their book. And I went, mm. wow, that sounds pretty cool. I haven't done that. You know, have to try that. Uh, but. Uh, I don't see why, you know, once you have a book published, you should market it as much as you can. And, you know, having an ad in Suspense Magazine, for instance, uh, is a good idea going to that Killer Nashville uh, or any of those conferences. Uh, that's a good idea. I'm going I'm going to Left Coast Crime in, in Hawaii in March, and I'll be at Boucher. Uh, when's that, October? Yeah. I think, so, yeah, it's, only, it's, yeah, it's at the end. Yeah. And I run into so many really – Fun people. I mean, again, if you sit alone by yourself writing, it's fantastic to go to a conference and meet another, I don't know, 100 other people who sit alone, and it's like it's like you're part of a of a, of a club or you know a worldwide membership that that meets once a year, <laughs> and you haven't seen yeah. these people in like forever. Um, I think it, it stokes the fires and gets you you know ready to write uh, twice as good as, as uh, if you just sat home and face the blank page one more day. I'm all for it. Yeah. I, and, you know, and I think that's great that, that that there is a lot of support that's out there now. And, and that's one thing, because I'm not a social media person. I always call it a weapon of mass destruction. But when it's used correctly, I mean, you guys can connect, and, you know, things can be sent back and forth fairly quickly. I mean, you're not putting your manuscript in the in the snail mail and sending it for $11 to someone to read and send back. You know, you can just email it to them, and you can get more instant feedback. And that's one thing you can also get is a lot more instant feedback. I've, I've mentioned this many times before with authors. You know, when you put a book out there, like today, you're going to start having reviews, and you're going to start seeing reviews. You're going to start seeing people talk about it. And sometimes I've seen this where people let those reviews and what people are talking about affect the current book that they're reading now or that they're writing now, do you kind of do that? Do you even look at the reviews or are you just like, you know, I, I'm putting it out there and I'm not going to worry about what, what the reviews are. I'm just going to concentrate on the next book. No, no, I, 
I can't resist looking at the reviews. If there's a, if there's a positive <laughs> Even the review, bad ones? Well, yeah. If there's a bad review, uh, I immediately go into the denial, you know. Uh, but within a day or two, if dwelling in the back of my brain, I'm going like, mm, maybe there's something to, you know, what that person said. You know, maybe there's a tip or something I can learn. Maybe they're right. Maybe I had to tone this down or beat that up kind of a thing. So there was wild feedback. Uh, feedback's probably, I don't know, maybe 25% uh, of what I end up putting on the page. Uh, the other 75%, though, uh, to me, it's the real meat. Uh, it's the the really stuff that I really want to write, really want to say, have fun doing, and then, oh, yeah, I better uh, edit it down or tone it up based on what I heard in, in this review or, or that comment back from somebody so that's kind of the process outside of, you know, sitting down and typing. It's, it's, a, it's a process of just putting down stuff that sounds like fun to do and then maybe tempering it a little bit based on what uh, other people suggest or not. Yeah, because, you know, you, do, cause, cause you can't make everybody happy. I mean, that's just the way it is. I right. mean, some people are going to like it. Some people might not like it. I, I mean, like the books that we publish and I tell our authors, hey, you know what? If you get a negative review, I mean, look at it for what it is. I mean, you, again, you're not going to make everybody happy. The one thing that I always say is if they're nitpicking on something, whatever, I say, you know, push aside because those people are not going to be happy with anything. But if you see the same people saying the same things over and over and over and over again, then maybe you should look at how you're doing it and maybe not make that mistake the next time is the thing. But if it's just kind of the one-offs, it's like, okay, that's a crazy person. Um, and, you know, heal yourself however you want to. Like author Kevin O'Brien will literally look at his Amazon reviews, and the one that he finds the, 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 one that he finds the funniest that says that they hated the book, then he takes that person's name, and that's who he kills, and, you know, he kills them in the next book. And that's like his – that's the thing that he does, and that's kind of his uh, little treatment to himself. So I always found that funny. Yeah. Well, he he told me once that he uh, he prints out a copy of it and pins it on the wall above where he's writing too. I don't know yeah. what, what that's supposed to do, but you know, it's just funny. I think I think after a while, when you've been writing so long, you've heard it all, and then when you find the one that's like, wow, yeah. this guy, this girl is actually really in, you know, really took the time to write something, you know, whatever, cute and knocking me. Eh, it's kind of neat. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> Well, the the good reviews are the ones that really, really make not just your day, they make your week and your month. Because uh, on the surface of the book, you know, uh, you're telling a story. But deeper down, you know that there's a a theme, uh, there's a point to what you're writing about. Uh, It isn't just, you know, putting words together. It's something that matters, important. To you is is buried in this book, and occasionally you'll get a review whether the reader got that, and that's the positive right. best review you can get because they they really dug deep and you communicated as opposed to just maybe stood up and, and did stand up or uh, entertained for a little bit. Absolutely. Well, hey John, okay. we are running out of time, my man, and I want to thank you again for coming on. So don't leave those people hanging there yeah. at your meeting in the library, and you get over there and do that and tell them you had a great time, and uh, we will talk very shortly in the future. So thanks again so much for coming on and wish you nothing but the best. Congratulations on your Silver Falcone Award, too. That was wonderful. Hey, they're all here, and they all want to help. Goodbye. Bye. 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 See you later. 
You guys have a good one and enjoy. All right, bye bye. So again, everybody, that is author John. Um, um, I'm going to mess up his name. John Hegenberger, and the latest book is called Stormfall. It's book five in his Stan Wade series. Make sure you go to johnhegenberger.com, H-E-G-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R for more information on this book and all of his series. We are going to take another short break, and we're going to be back with our next guest, last one of the day, Sally Fernandez. Haven't uh, spoken with her before, so it's going to be exciting to get someone new here on the show. So in the meantime, we'll let you listen to this, and we'll be right back. Everybody, after the break, we want to thank you all for listening to the show here. It's been great to have, uh, you know, John D. Dacus on and then Edward Kay, and then, of course, we just had John Hegenberger on. So it's been a wonderful show. And now we are going to talk with our last guest of the, of the day here, author Sally Fernandez. And her latest book is called Climatized. It is a Max Ford thriller series. Um, and Sally has written several uh, thriller books. We're going to kind of touch a little bit on, on some of these, but we're going to get into her latest book here first. So we want to thank Sally for coming on to the show. So Sally, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. Thank you for having me on. Sure. Um, so again, Climatized here is uh, your Max Ford Thriller series, and, it, and it's, it's your first book um, in this series. So you kind of are kind of doing something a little bit new. You're, you're kind of stepping out and starting to do kind of the series uh, thing here. So Tell us a little bit about what you got going on. Well, Climatized, as you mentioned, it's, it's my fifth novel, but it is the first book in a Max Ford thriller series. And this debuts my female protagonist, Max Ford. She uh, was actually introduced in one of my earlier novels, but this kind of gets her her own stage. 
Um, the book basically uh, has to do with she's hired by the wife of a prominent senator uh, to determine the cause of his untimely death. And during the investigation, she discovers that three world-renowned scientists had also lost their lives sort of days before they were supposed to schedule. They were scheduled to um, testify before the late senator's investigative committee on climate change. And then meanwhile, a fourth scientist has gone missing. So Max uh, determines uh, the key to unearthing the motives. Um, it leads her to Italy. And uh, after many more twists and turns, she uncovers a powerful organization responsible for the killings. And she provides uh, evidence to the President of the United States, and that forces him to make a crucial decision to cover up a diabolical plot or bring down a multi-trillion dollar worldwide economy. So that's kind of the essence and, and the, of the story. And the one thing that you did, which, which is really fascinating, because a lot of people don't do this, is like you said, you know, Max, which is short for Maxine, she was in one of your earlier books, and now you've decided to kind of bring her out. Why did you kind of decide to do that route instead of just creating a brand new character uh, for the series? Well, it's interesting because um, when I started my first, which was a trilogy that became a tetralogy, which we'll talk about in a little while, uh, I immediately started off with the challenge of creating seven distinct male characters. So I had a bunch of scholars that worked together, and um, it, um, it, it kept the books going. But on the second book, I just decided I need to bring a female. Um, as my husband says, it was getting pretty crowded in our house with all these men running around in my head. So um, it was kind of fun bringing Max in. She was former CIA. Um, she came in as the deputy director and sort of second, second tier uh, in the intelligence uh, community, but um, I had fashioned my books a lot after the the Brad Thors and the Baldacci's and the Silvas, and I kind of felt that I didn't really like their female characters, and I wanted to just kind of create my own character that, in all honesty, she's kind of my fantasy of becoming a secret agent one day, but... Um, I wanted to give her her own stage and I've had so much fun with this character in terms of trying to keep her real, not making her some kind of a super sci-fi, but someone you could sit down and chat with over a glass of wine. So just trying to keep her real. She's intelligent. She's attractive. She's determined nature and formidable mouth, which is probably me to a large degree but it all helps to um, kind of shape her persona. So it's been fun. And I bring some of the male characters uh, from the previous series into this. And I introduce new um, uh, male uh, uh, roles, but I make sure that she doesn't overshadow and doesn't dominate. Uh, she has her own vulnerabilities. Um, but it's, it's been fun creating a character. I have a backstory that will kind of ooze out, kind of like the Lizzie in Blacklist. Um, oh, okay. And um, 
it will just hopefully allow the reader to become increasingly enchanted uh, by her character. And so it's been fun kind of developing her, um, as I said, to kind of give her a stage of her own. Now, you, um, as a, you know, in, in your personal life, as, as a person, have been through, you have a lot of experiences. I mean, you know, you, you visit and you've lived in many different places around the world. So you've had a lot of culture that you were able to kind of pull from with, you know, creating characters and kind of putting people into different situations. So when you were kind of deciding, hey, you know what, I'm going to do Climatize, I'm going to do Max Ford, this is going to kind of be the push-off point to kind of, kind of do your new series – what was one of the biggest experiences from your personal life you think you maybe kind of pulled from to kind of put this into the book? Because you had so many probably to choose from. It's kind of interesting because in all of my books, I use a bit of my uh, international experience, travel. I came out of the financial industry, but with technology. So there's a lot of technology weaved in. But the the one the one personal part of me is that I'm a political junkie. And um, so all of my books... You had a lot of be, fun this last year, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I've, they've been feeding me fodder for a long time. I started this in 2007 because of the politics. But yeah. um, I actually, you know, I, I my writing style is shaped by something that uh, Francis Bacon once said, that uh, the truth is hard to tell. It sometimes needs fiction to make it plausible. So when I started this whole venture, which is totally new from my my corporate career, um, that kind of set the stage for my writing. And I kind of say I pen provocative political thrillers steeped in facts. So um, I use my background. I use some of the travel um, my scenes in the in the stories are factual, um, realistic. People that kind of some people say it's kind of like a travel log. I take them to Italy and to other parts. Um, yeah. So it's probably more of my personal uh, interest, um, the politics, and believing. Uh, and if I can quote just another luminary here, um, Pericles, who said back in. Uh, 450 BC that just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. And that is so true now as it was way back then. So that whole personal side of me uh, wants me to write these books in a way that it will um, answer the questions, uh, kind of create the what if for the reader um, so I start out uh, wanting to make them kind of think about what's happening in the world around them and contemplate and create kind of that what-if scenario. So it's, I think my background comes into it, but it has more to do with just my personal interest and lifelong interest of just politics. Now, your previous four books were part of your Simon Tetralogy series, and that included Redemption, The Ultimate Revenge, Noble's Quest, and Brotherhood Beyond the Yard. And so when people now kind of you know, get out of that realm and now into your newest book, Climatized here with, with Max, even though they're a little familiar with who she is, how has Sally Fernandez maybe changed as an author that people are going to notice maybe a little bit of differences from the past series now into this new series? 
I think when I started writing, because it was new for me, um, it was a little heavier in that each book took in several different political issues and wrapped it in what I thought was a fast-paced kind of murder mystery uh, suspense novel. And I was able to do that. But I wanted to reach a wider audience beyond people who just wanted the political aspect of it. And so what the Max Ford Thriller series does is it kind of lightens it up. Max is a fun character to get to know. She gets in her, into all kinds of things. Um, but at the same, and I'm only taking one issue. So this is about climate change. The next book will be about something else. So it doesn't get so heavy into it, but it allows the reader to maybe learn something that's going on and still have fun with it. So I say uh, in Climatized in particular, it's really garnered the attention of the scientific community, which I would like to share with you, but it would also yeah. be a fun beach read. And so I tried to just open it up to a wider audience, to people that may not care about all the politics but find kind of some subliminal way to get one little message in there about one topic. So that's kind of, I, I don't want to really want to say immoral, but that was kind of your goal in, in wanting to kind of educate the reader kind of in this kind of way by using a very, very real topic that's going on and actually very highly debated. And, you know, you kind of, like you said, you're putting this in the fictional form to kind of get some of the truth kind of out and, and so what was kind of your challenge, you know, in balancing kind of the very scientific aspect with more of the, I guess you just want to say the entertainment aspect, because it's still, at the end of the day, it still has to be a thriller and it still has to be entertaining for the reader to want to go forward. Exactly. And in, in this book particular, um, I... It was really interesting because when I was doing one of the earlier books, it was uh, The Ultimate Revenge, I touched on the topic of global warming. But I discovered that there seemed to be a real disconnect between the scientific data and public policy. And so what I wanted to do was, and, and I think we can all agree, as you just mentioned, you know, climate change is up there with religion and politics. You know, it creates a lot of heated conversations but a lot of confusion. So I wanted to create a book and, and use the book or the novel as a platform to uh, kind of put to rest some of the confusion for the reader and shine a light on the real science, but do it in a way that's, that's fun in terms of the, the fictional plot, but to learn something. And one of the things I did um, this time around was I changed my style a bit. And I actually weaved in real-life experts into my fictional plot. So, um, for example, I, you, I chose Dennis Avery, who's a New York Times best-selling co-author with Fred Singer, who wrote Unstoppable Global Warming. And I had one of my fictional characters working for him. <laughs> I also pulled in a team of... Um, former NASA Apollo space mission veterans. And after I wrote the manuscript, I contacted them um, just out of courtesy and um, wanted to see if they would uh, fact check the manuscript and kind of get their sure. sense. 
Uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Dennis Avery, I had a friend who knew him, and he passed along the manuscript. And um, I wasn't sure what would happen, but I was shocked. We, we also live in Italy part of the year. So he called me at my home in Italy a few weeks later and um, basically said, uh, from he was in Virginia and said I had accomplished what no other human being in the Western world had been able to express. So at that point, I was kind of feeling pretty cocky, and I decided to get in touch with this group. Um, I actually, in my research, I found a letter. Um, it, it was written actually. It was an article in the Business Insider, written by Gus Lubin. And it was about a letter that a group of Apollo NASA veterans had sent to the director of NASA administrator at the time, Charles Bolden. And they were actually arguing with the fact that NASA was putting out certain information about the science being not debatable. And they were at odds with that. And I found a list of people and went through and kind of researched them and discovered the chairman Dr. Hal Doron of a group he had formed called the Right Climate Stuff Research Team. And another member, Tom Weissmuller and uh, Larry Gould, who's a physicist, a physics um, professor at, universe, at Harvard University, University of Harvard, excuse me, and Tom Weissmuller, um, all members of this team. And they read it and reviewed it and just gave me raving reviews. So it's been really interesting to get the support of the scientific community, as well as also the Heartland Institute, Jay Lair, the science director, has reviewed it. But it's a fun beach read, and I'm getting that from my readers. Yeah. So it's kind of done a an interesting turn. Um, excuse me for rattling on here, but I just returned right. from NASA after giving a presentation to this group and getting a private tour through NASA, through some of the Apollo uh, space veterans. So it's, it was a very exciting time, but something I never expected to come out of writing a book. But right. um, it may be a style going forward in terms of actually, you know, utilizing some real experts as some of my characters to just give it that such plausibility. And, and again, because of my whole Francis Bacon style of weaving fact with fiction, uh, all of these um, elements just add to the plausibility so it's, it's been really a fun fun project uh, i want to remind everybody here that we're all that we are speaking with author sally fernandez you can go to sallyfernandez.com for more information of course on this latest book climatize which is available now you can buy it however you want to buy books it's available out there right now um, along with her previous series which you can check out all of her books by going to sallyfernandez.com one character I want to kind of get a little bit more information also is Jackson Monroe. What can you tell <laughs> us about Jackson uh, in this book here? Well, Jackson was fun, fun because um, in my fourth book, uh, Redemption, and again, I, I had the Simon trilogy, but there was a fourth mm -hmm. book that kind of needed to be told in Redemption. And um, it actually starts in 2017 with a new president, who has to decide how to get jobs back, people back in the workforce, uh, look at all the different policies that cause the paucity in, in, in jobs. Sound familiar? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway, my, my group of scholars went underground to try to put together policy programs for the president. And um, Noble, who is um, the head of the agency and organizing this for the president, needed someone to kind of help with these guys and pulled in Jack. So he, he's kind of taking care of them, running their errands, but he actually is an ex-CIA agent who um, has a lot of experience, and he was just doing Noble a favor because he'd be the only one allowed into this underground secret place that they were hiding out. Actually, it was part of NORAD. I I was thinking, Jax is kind of fun. He's like this. He's this tall black guy. He's got a really quick mouth, uh, but he's really smart. And so when Max started, uh, Max left the agency, Noble, which you'll find there's a little love interest going on with the former director. He didn't want her to kind of do this thing on her own. She'd be out without the government protection for the first time. And so Jax became her partner. And uh, it's in a way of kind of keeping an eye on her and keeping her out of trouble, doing a favor for Noble. But then they end up being a, a really great partnership and they feed off each other. And it, it makes for fun dialogue. And so it was It was just, I needed to bring, you know, my husband said, my husband is also my editor. I must mention that. And uh, oh. he said, you know, who is this Jack's guy? And I said, you'll just have to wait for the next book and see how his character develops. So I always, each book, I introduce a new character and kind of move them along. I've dropped off some, I've killed off some. But um, Max and Jack's, and it, it, it's ironic because, Maxine Ford was first, and later I had this Jackson Monroe, and he called himself Jackson, never thinking that I would bring him into a book where we had Jackson Max, but I couldn't change the ni- names at that point. So yeah. it's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it, and it works well. And, and I think that, you know, the hardest thing also, like you just said, is when you're bringing new people in and then you're letting oh, you know people go and this and that, it's kind of deciding – how it's going to affect the, you know, on an emotional level, how it's going to affect those characters and, and how are they going to react to death and how are they going to react to, you know, uh, uh, the things that, uh, you know, normal people have to, have to deal with in their lives because everybody reacts differently. And, you know, your characters might surprise you a little bit when you're writing because you're not really sure maybe yourself how that's going to happen. Well, my characters are like, they're, I mean, they're so real to me, and they're like relationships. They develop alongside of me. And some people ask, you know, who are they fashioned after? And I really can't think of any of them uh, that they resemble other people. They just pop into my head because my style of writing is also it's more like real to real. Most people who read my books, they should be movies, which I agree. But they just... I'm in a room and I'm writing a scene and all of a sudden this character pops up and then they become my best friends. Um, they have good, they have bad. Uh, I want the, the readers to, to be able to, to hate them in some instances and love them in others. And even my scoundrel, Simon, everybody loves Simon, even though he was a terrorist. Uh, but they have to feel and I feel them first. They're real to me. And I hope that that transfers into the, the words on the pages. 
Um, so some will die and some will come in. And I mentioned that Max has this backstory, um, which is quite interesting. It shows up in kind of one chapter. It's little hints along the way. But she had a brother named Daniel, and a lot of readers came back to me and said, please, please put Daniel in the next book. Well, of course, he's going to be showing up in all kinds of ways. But it's fun that um, when the readers fall in love with my characters like I do. Now, do do you attend a lot of um, events? Do you go out uh, to, like, you know, like the Love Coast Crimes, the Boucher Cons, the places like that where, you know, you meet the fans kind of face-to-face? You know, I haven't really had that opportunity. It's kind of embarrassing to say, but the way uh, my life has been, I do, we live six months of the year in Florence, Italy, and the rest of the months in, in, um, I'm in Sarasota, Florida. And um, so my writing is usually totally devoted to being there, and then I come back, and it's all about the publishing and the marketing and that aspect. Um, right. Things will be changing, and I will be getting out more and more, but the timing is such that a lot of these events take place when I'm over there. So um, we're trying to rework that a little bit. Yeah, and and the, and the one thing that is, is always sometimes kind of difficult, too, is getting yourself out. I mean, you know, as a lot of writers, they like to sit behind the computer. They kind of put their words together, and it's sometimes difficult to kind of get out in front and, and talk uh, you know, but now that you've kind of had five books out and you've done a lot of the marketing, is is that more just natural to you? Uh, it's becoming more natural, yes. The presentations, yeah. the radio interviews, it's all coming together. Yeah. And the funny thing is because we have a lot of authors and a lot of friends that we know that are in Europe, and to see – and you see this firsthand, I'm sure – you see the European writers and the European authors and the stories they tell, and then the American authors and American writers, the stories they tell. It's funny to see how the fans react in such a different way across the coast. I mean, European and American readers have a lot of vast differences, and you probably see that when you're over there, and you can kind of see the kinds of stories that they're reading in Europe and the things that they get excited about are really kind of different than in America. You know, an author like a Steve Barry and, uh, you know, is not very popular in Europe, just like Peter James is so popular in Europe and he's mm-hmm. not really popular in the United States. Exactly. And I, and I do think they kind of follow their, their own. Although I know that the UK is doing a lot to reach out to thriller authors in the U.S. Uh, so uh, I think that there's more of an interest in that. For me, it, it makes it a little more interesting or difficult is because mine is more politically based. And, right. and the European, yeah. think, you know, the discussions I have are quite interesting. But um, I, I'm turning them slowly to, uh, to my thinking, <laughs> book by book. Well, and now, uh, do you have plans maybe to move things more more international? Maybe set a book totally out of the United States and have it just out someplace else? Um, because, well, in the past, because of the the tetralogy, it was all American politics. Although each one of the books, uh, large swaths of it, took place in other places. Um, the first book, Brotherhood, half of the book took place in Italy. Um, the Maxine Ford book, part of, part of this book, um, takes place in Italy as well. Uh, there's some 
One of them was in the UK and Paris. So I do try to bring in some international aspects of it. Um, but with the Max book now, uh, it will give me kind of a license to branch out and not make it just about American politics. And certainly climate change is an international issue. So I think Max, the, the, the climatized, will be much more appealing to people around the world because it all encompasses something that they're, they have an interest in and they're aware of. Um, and my next book may be pretty much the same. I'm still toying with some plots. But the Max book has freed up a lot. It's, it's allowed me to make it a little lighter, a little more fun, a little more fast-paced, and also subject matter more appealing on a, on a worldwide basis than just um, from the U.S. You know, storyline. And I will say one thing, too. Um, I would have to say that if I was a box of cereal, I'd probably be Fruit Loops. So I found that interesting on your website, on your FAQ. I was like, I've never seen an author say, if I was a box of cereal, what would I be? And it's like, granola, interesting. I'm like, I would be more of a Fruit Loop person because I'm just crazy at times. <laughs> well, see, I used to live in San Francisco, so maybe that's why the granola came up. <laughs> oh, that could be, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Sally, it has been fascinating talking to you. I want to thank you so much, and I'm going to thank Mary for kind of putting us together because it's been a fascinating conversation. I could keep going on, but we've kind of reached the end. So, again, thank you so much for coming on. Good luck with your new series. Keep us uh, updated on what you got going on, and we'd love to have you back on when, when book two comes out. So see how Maxine has kind of progressed and how, what kind of trouble you're getting her into. Well, thank you so much, John. I promise to get her into a lot of trouble, but it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> I really right. appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You have a good one. We will talk with you later. Okay, great. Take care. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Sally Fernandez, and please visit sallyfernandez.com for more information on her latest book, Climatize, the first in her Max Ford Thriller series. It is out now. Buy it whatever format you want to buy books. It is available. You can just go to Amazon, get in the Kindle paperback, Whatever you want, uh, the book is out now. We want to thank you all for listening to the show. And, of course, we also want to thank all of our guests for being on here today uh, with John, De John, John DeCakis, Edward Kay, and John Hergenberger along with Sally Fernandez. It's been a fascinating show. Again, thank you all. Check out the new suspensemagazine.com. We have a lot of things going up there now, uh, a lot of reviews, a lot of excerpts, just it's a fascinating. It, it's fun to actually do all that, and it's a lot of work, but it's good to get it all out there. Um, if you want to check out our latest issue, it is also online on there. You can see our Best of uh, 2016 awards if you haven't seen that out there. So until next time, everybody, we want to say, like we always do, keep reading. See you next time. Bye-bye.